There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. And I said, I want to win the league, but I want to win it better. You can understand that, can't you? Yes. Good luck. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. Second captain, first captain, whatever. It's the Irish Times Second Captain's Podcast with Owen and Murph here. Hi, Hello there, Owen. Ken's not in studio, as you can see, Karen, but I'm just explaining this to our listeners. Okay, sorry. Yeah, because... I, I was wondering. <laughs> I'm an observant fellow, you know. I can't spot who's in a room. Anyway, he's in LA at the moment, uh, having watched Robbie Robbie Kino fire his LA Galaxy to Major League victory against the, their hated foes, the New England Revolution, mm. last night. And he'll join us for the football podcast later on. You enjoyed Robbie Robbie Kino last night? I did, I did. Uh... I mean, the, the, the goal that won it uh, was actually a really, really nice finish. And I really, at no stage in my life, did I expect to be quite so emotionally invested in an MLS Cup final. <laughs> Usually when, if I were to see myself watching an MLS Cup final, it would be as a studied, relaxed outsider. You know, totally neutral. Um, but it turns out that uh, I'm an LA Galaxy Ultra when it comes to tournaments and uh, championships being won. I read briefly this morning. It's one of these things where I just saw the headline and I, I'm only it's only popping back into my head now. And I should, probably should have checked the entire thing, but I'm going to put it out yeah, there. And we, can, we, we can follow this up with Ken later on, so it's fine. Any unfinished strands in this show, right, it's Robbie Keane, we can just mm. tie them up later on. But it, I th- he had a bit of a co apparently, at a journalist in the press conference for saying, yeah, well, Robbie, you know, you scored the goals, well done, but, uh, or the goal, but, you know, you, what about the rest of your performance? He said, what are you talking about? That was really good. <laughs> I've got this <laughs> big trophy that <laughs> yeah. says I'm both the season MVP and the game MVP. But funny, so. I did notice, uh, I don't know how much of the game you saw, but the commentators were, it sounds like quite a lot, you're quite invested in it. The mm. commentators, I noticed, were ripping him quite a bit um, uh, for a number of different reasons. I think they were particularly irked when he had a, a very easy chance to slide mm. Landon Donovan through for yeah, his yeah, crowning yeah. glory in his last ever game of professional football but instead Robbie tried to beat a man and <laughs> hit an impossible shot well listen that's the goal scorer in him that's the goal scorer in him but you see the thing is the assist king is the Robbie that they've come to know sure he yeah. scored a lot of goals but he's got almost as many assists as we discussed on the show the other day so maybe he shed that tag that we have of him being somewhat selfish he also I don't be raining on Robbie Robbie Kino's parade here but he was also as moany as I've ever seen him it was like that mm. phase remember he, he went off to 
nobody really noticed him particularly moaning a lot. Then he went and played in Italy for a season. Then he came back and he was gesticulating wildly for every last thing. I've not, I, I thought that, that side of his game had dropped a little bit, but yeah. my God, he was screaming at opponents, scream, his teammates, screaming at linesmen, screaming at referees. But then he scored the goal. So it was pretty much Robbie Keane's entire career. Yeah. Well, in listen, he's the MVP. He is the MVP. He's... He can do whatever the hell he likes. I mean, you know, if if uh, perhaps he wasn't doing this throughout the season for the Galaxy, but, you know, you give a man a large trophy that says you're the best player in the league, maybe he thinks he could probably, you know, ref, a, ref the game a little as well, you yeah. know? Um, it's only natural. Um, so MVP Robbie Keane does the business again on me. I couldn't be happier. A huge weekend for Robbie and a great weekend for Podrick Harrington who hit what he called his best shot of the week to win the Indonesian Open. That was his approach shot to the last and it was his first full tournament victory in four years. We're going to chat to him on the show today. That's the good news. We're going to talk to him uh, in a little while. Now we interviewed Harrington on Second Captains Live, if you remember, on TV on the eve of the Masters which is quite a poignant poignant time in that he was missing it for the first time this century and... um, he was quite stoic about it. He said he'll watch it, he'll learn stuff, and then he'll move on. But I was quite, I, I just remember it being a funny sort of a time in that you, you're just talking to this guy, hoping that he will mm. make it back. And this is obviously a long way from the Masters, but it is and it isn't. It's bumped him up a lot of places in the world rankings. And most importantly, it's confirmed to him in his head, I guess, what he, he hoped was still the case, and that is that he can win yeah. golf tournaments. Yeah, I mean, he, he was 391st in the world, and now he's 260th. So, by that rationale, he's shaved like a third of yeah. the distance between 390 and number one. So, if he wins again, right, he takes it down to 130. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then if he wins There's again... There's no law of diminishing returns there yeah, as you yeah, get no, to no, the no. higher no, reaches he, of the world rankings. He wins, he wins again, he's down to 130. And if he wins again, he's back at number one in the world. Yeah. So, the world rankings... You know what, people bang on about how complicated they are. It's actually quite easy to work out. If you use the poor Carrington uh, mathematics, he's always uh, he's always a uh, that nonsense aside a great guy to <laughs> listen to, uh, Podrick, and uh, we're going to give him a call in a little while. He's back in Dublin, I believe, already, so we'll have a hopefully have a decent chat with him about that and about his season in general, just where he stands now heading into next year. We also haven't talked to him since the Ryder Cup, so loads to get in. Uh, into with Potter Harrington. We're also going to talk to Michael Foley of the Sunday Times about all of that. But Harrington wasn't the only golfing hero over the weekend. Check out this little trooper. wasn't uh, wasn't wasn't easy, and uh, I fought hard, and it's about all I had. What's that? Well, I was <laughs> I wasn't doing too good at the beginning, but um, I I thought I could. Just gonna hang in there. If this fever just broke, I thought I'd be all right, and it uh, it finally broke on the front nine. <laughs> That's Tiger Woods soldiering on through a bad dose of the flu there at the Tiger Woods Hero World Challenge. You might that might be one of the reasons why Tiger didn't caught in sick. Yeah. But I mean, that's, that's what it sounds like. It sounds like someone literally calling in. I mean, that's the fake voice you put on when you're calling the office. To not say, that you've ever done it, Murph, I'm sure. No, I mean, you, well, you're not admitting to I mean, me I've right done, now. That I've you... done it on behalf of other people. <laughs> Ring in there and pretend that you're my father and say that I can't come into At work At least then today. you don't have to put on the sick voice. I mean, the sick yeah. voice, it's never convincing. No, it's not. It's never, and it's always over the top. Yeah. It's, come on, how sick are you? You just said you have a flu. You sound like... Mm. But no. On, on the other hand, if you are uh, a boss listening to this, that, does actually prove that the sick voice does exist. So don't doubt those employees. Yeah. You think, I mean, it's we're heading into peak calling in sick season. I mean, you know, if you're going to call in sick, then December, between now and the end of the year is, you know, your time to shine. Yeah, really, just you know? the uh, the old day after the office party is probably not 
Mm. I've heard it done, Murph. I've heard. I've never. I've questioned the wisdom of of it, but I guess if you're in a certain place Listen, mentally, you might just yeah, you might, <laughs> it might just seem like the better option not to be in work. You get paid for your hangover. You know that's what people said to me. You know you're sure. going to feel like crap anyway. So why not get into the office and get paid for it? Yeah, we, we've been talking mostly as we approach this festive season. We've been talking mostly good news stories so far, but there were defeats for both Leinster and Munster in the European Champions Cup at the weekend. Shane Horgan's ready to go, and Irish Times rugby correspondent Jerry Thornley is with us in studio. Jerry, cheers for popping in. Very good, thank you. Uh, first question: mm-hmm. Who would you be more worried about, Munster or Leinster? <laughs> Munster, I think. <laughs> really? Yeah, I do. Yeah, they're they're going to a real cauldron, a real bear pit, one of the most impenetrable fortresses in European rugby. Um, it's true that you know they were a bit. Frayed around the edges towards the end of last season, beaten at home by, uh, was it Castro in the barrage to end their 77 match winning streak, beaten at home early on this season by Montpellier in round three, which doesn't look too clever now. But I did just actually before I came here, I just worked it out. They, in their last whatever it is, six years, they played 85 matches at home, they won 83 and lost two. So, like, it's still fairly daunting for Munster. Um, and also, you wonder where Munster can come up with a plan B to beat Claremont, given that. Claremont are one of the few teams around in Europe, along with maybe Toulon and stuff, that can meet them on the fringes around the game line in a way that Saracens and Leinster weren't able to do. And really then, after that, Munster had no answers. And I'd, I'd, apart from raising up the intensity, I don't know what an awful lot else Munster can do yeah, differently. Yeah, I was quite struck by that afterwards. Peter Manny talked about it, Anthony Foley talked about it. And you can, you can see it as honesty in saying that we were bullied and we physically couldn't match up to them. But it was that, that was quite obvious watching the game, and yet there was no sense that anything else was going to happen. Is it, was it almost a bit of naivety to think that they could actually buddy Claremont? Well, I think what they've done so far, they've produced two absolutely superb performances against the two best teams they've met this season, Leinster and Saracens. And they've done that by swarming them, by suffocating them, by retaining the ball, by attacking in fairly narrow channels. At times, you could have almost thrown a blanket, not just over the pack, but the entire team. They were attacking all 15 of them within kind of a, a kind of a width of 20 metres, um, five metre, 10 metres either side of the post, say. At times, you could see them doing that against both Leinster and Saracens. If... You have players like Cudmore and Kaiser and Fritz Lee who are putting in 15, 16, 17 tackles around the fringes and meeting them head on and driving them back. Then you've no momentum for that game. And there, I mean, I thought Conor Murray still box kicked and they chased very well, but there was just no penetration whatsoever. And they stopped Stander in particular. And uh, when you stop Munster around the fringes, let's be honest, it's not a vintage midfield. There is no, there's no Maffey and no Topoki or no La 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 there at the moment. And there's not an awful lot wide out either. So, like, they, that, the, the template that worked so well against Leinster and Sarns, they just couldn't get it to base the base mark against Claremont because Claremont's on coming. Shane, uh, Nick Abendon on the fullback there for Claremont. I saw him on BT Sport yesterday and he was, say, he was saying that John O'Gibbs obviously knew Munster very well. He's with uh, he's with Claremont now. And essentially he's just talking about what Jerry talked about there. That was, it was a pretty simple game plan that they knew they needed to beat Munster and that was enough. Yeah, I think there was definitely um, the fingerprints of John O'Gibbs on the performance. I think especially in the defensive system that um, Claremont employed, um, I think it's because Munster are quite readable. When Munster really try to get the momentum going, they do it through one-out runners, and they rely on quick uh, speed uh, from the nine to the carrier, who's forward momentum, he makes yards, recycles the ball really quickly, straight away another runner, and we saw that against uh, Leinster, and they really dominated Leinster in that tight channel around the rook uh, with huge momentum. It's something actually Ireland have employed as well this year uh, with good effect. The problem is, 
Claremont could see this coming, and there was no other threat other than that first runner. So if you if you look at the defensive line as Claremont, I thought it was offside a number of times, but they did mm, employ yeah. a shooter. So the the the, the man opposite the um, Munster ball carrier shot out the line, was first up, and very often employed a, a chop tackle. And because there was no outlet pass, that meant they were being tackled very much behind the gain line. It was very hard to go, go momentum. It was slower. But, so the rookers had to, to sort of go back and rook out from behind as opposed to uh, moving on with forward momentum. And we saw this time after time at a time. And I was surprised that Anthony Foley didn't see this and, and realise we've got to change the point of attack here. It's not enough just to get our carriers. And they were very brave. And they, you know, they did their best. Uh, and they didn't make that many mistakes. But ultimately, they couldn't get the momentum going because of this shooter that uh, Claremont employed. Were you surprised about that, Jerry? Well, yeah. yeah, and actually further to that, I would, Shane would agree with that. The, the only time Munster then got any kind of reward was in the latter stages when they started pick and go right up the middle, which took out that shooter. So, yeah, they adapted quite late to and the pick and go was probably their best reward because they weren't getting any joy out in their, in their backs either. Um I think that, you know, it was almost impossible for them to win that game when you look back, unless everything went right for them. Uh, they were given an in because Claremont should have been out of sight at half time. Let's be honest, Claremont left was at seven points in the tee and two tries behind. That game could have been over by half time. So good were Claremont in the first half. Bearing that in mind, it's, I know it's easy from the cheap seats and the stand, or in my case, the couch, but like, uh, I just don't like it when a team's been on the back foot for 36, 37, 38 minutes, coming towards half time. You've got a penalty, your kicker's landed two kicks, you can take a third kick and get to within a score. And I would have thought to get within seven points at the end of that first half after the beating they'd taken would have been quite something. Alternatively, when you opt to go to the corner, as the Munster Brains Trust did, you're almost inviting the opposition to come up with a big play because they know you've got one shot, you've got one shot that's getting a try off a line-up mall or else it's the, the away team sprints off the dressing room feeling even better about it. Well, that goes back to the idea that they, and in, and fairness, then, in fairness to Munster over the years, they have bullied so many teams that maybe they, I just they don't, think it's... Just, I just don't like a minute from half time, I just don't think it's a good play. It's not the time to do I just, it. If it's five minutes from half time, you've got, you might get a second or third go at it, but you're really only going to probably get one go at it if you do it that, that close to half time, particularly in the context of match, particularly as it's a cup occasion. I mean, the, the, the time they did it at home to Leicester, I remember they went for a scrum five metres out when yeah. they had a kick to go in front with 14 men, they didn't take it. So it hasn't always worked either. You know what I mean? I mean, okay, lots of lots of times at work but I just felt that you know they then spent 20 minutes in the second half getting back the three points to make it a one score game that they could have got just before half time Shane? Yeah listen I, I think Jerry's probably right I think under that circumstance I would have always liked to take the points but you know what that wasn't you know for me it wasn't the key um, decision in the game and you know yes things turn on you know um, moments but you know, the Munster were categorically, you know, outplayed pretty much all over the park. I was just, I was really disappointed, and it's, a, I think, it's a keen that's a theme that's common both to Leinster and Munster this season is the actual ambition that they're playing with, mm. and I don't mean. You know, they're not trying to win or their players aren't, you know, really putting their bodies on the line and being very physical. I think both teams are, like both Leinster and Munster are, you know, really taking a lot of knocks. There's a huge amount, very attritional games they're playing at the moment um, and really putting their bodies on the line. But they just, I don't think they're trusting their skill level or they're, you know, they're trying, you know, that was made for a little slip ball off the first runner, you know, that big first uh, uh, receiver, instead of actually going, taking the ball into contact or being chopped down really early, just drop it off the inside or the outside, out the back door to, you know, a winger coming around the corner. There were definite spaces there against that Claremont team. That Claremont defence, you can get you can get yardage against them, but if you go against them in their toughest areas, 
then you won't. You know, and that was very clear. It wasn't. I don't think Munster necessarily had to play their best game ever uh, to beat Claremont. Claremont are, are are not unbeatable. They just need to play the right game against Claremont. And if you go toe to toe with with Claremont, if you try to out muscle them. You might do one in ten times, but the likelihood is the other nine times you won't do that. And Munster should have known that. And you can't rely on Claremont having you know that off day physically because you know if if you put all the cards on the table and Munster uh, the Munster team are going as physical as they can possibly go, and Claremont are as physical and the size of the men that they have, just pure size wins out on the Claremont side there. Is the issue, Shane, that maybe, we're talking about there not being a plan B, and I'm also interested in why maybe the players didn't take it upon themselves to change things up. Would it be a bit of an admission of defeat if their idea was to go out and uh, hurt Claremont around the fringes and bully them? If they were to then go another tack with 20 minutes to go, is that just sowing a seed of doubt in their own heads that we we weren't able to bully these guys? Well, you see, this is the thing I'm not certain about plan A's and plan B's. Um, like, I think the, the, the plan A was the wrong plan. You know, you, you don't, I don't think that that's a smart, a smart play against Claremont. It is. Uh, what Munster have done is they've reduced the uh, amount of errors or opportunity to, to make mistakes. They've done that through Anthony Foley. They've had their runners running very committed, rook very low, with numbers in the gate behind them, ready to go very often the leech, and that speeds up their their quick rook ball. And you know either they have great gains from the carries themselves, or the next phase, or they move it out a little bit wider, and the space is out because the defences collapse in um, around them. And that is fine for the level that the Pro 12 is at. And even against uh, Leinster, and the way Leinster are playing at the moment, done effectively. They got rewards and they beat Leinster well, convincingly using that, those uh, traits. And actually, it even worked against uh, Saracens. You know, I don't think Saracens were, were playing at their best, but it worked on that day against Saracens. But Saracens consistently get beaten by the top French teams. They never won a Heineken Cup yet or you know, a rugby championship as it is now. They've never won one. Um, and against Toulon... Or against Claremont, both sides you're going to have to, you know, beat. I would imagine to win the, this uh, competition, you can. I, trying to outmuscle them is not a smart play. You might be able to do it once, but it's not the percentage game to play. Is there anything Munster can do in the space of a week, Jerry? Um, I'm not sure that there is. Like, I think yeah, change the point of attack, be smarter. Um, but like Shane said, maybe vary the point of attack. I think definitely pick and go. They they had some joy with that towards the end. Their maul was still a bit of a weapon. We've got to remember that three times their line-out failed them in attacking positions, that has a huge seismic effect on a game because that's three attacking platforms gone. And it takes you a long while to get attacking platforms against teams like Claremont. So get the line-out working. I mean, you know, set-piece accuracy, more so Munster line-out, more so Leinster scrum, but it, it is still they're two, the two bedrocks of the game. You get your set-pieces right and you've got a chance. Get them wrong and you really are battling against the odds. So take those three line-outs and get them right. You've got three attacking platforms, maybe three attacking malls. Much more chance to get more points. Conceivably, that could have been a major difference. I still think they, they should take their kicks at goal. Like, if they get that three points, we get a seven-point game. Then the three points again in the second, that makes it a four-point game. Then they got a penalty with five minutes to go, they might kick it. I know it's all ifs, buts and maybes, but I think, you know, take your chances this time. Definitely, as really would. I remember Leinster losing to Claremont 15-12 down there when they went for one cross kick off a quick tap and didn't take the shot at goal. They might have got a draw out of that game. But they're possibly, they're possibly playing the best team in Europe. I mean, Claremont, I think should probably be favourites to win it this year. ahead. I don't know if Toulon can win it a third year in a row. OK, they're a serious team when it comes to the business end of the season and they've got pedigree when it comes to winning trophies and silverware in a way that Claremont don't. But, you know, I heard Claremont described as a busted flush uh, last week. 
this is the team that came to the Aviva and beat Leinster up two years ago. So they've, they've now won away to Leinster and away to Munster in the last two trips in Irish soil. They should have won in Saracens. They picked their strongest team. They've solved a bit of a problem for them at out half. You know, they're serious contenders. They're up there with Toulon now. Let's talk Leinster, Jerry. And the, I, I get the sense with Matt O'Connor that he seems, he seems to feel that he's been unfairly criticised mm. for the lack of ambition that his team have shown, given that there have been so many injuries and the usual challenges of integrating the international players back. But another big game in a, in a big tournament, no tries and a fairly disappointing defeat. Yeah, no tries, second Heineken Cup game in a row, same as the week before against the Ospreys. And a bit like Munster, beating two tries to nil and never looked like scoring a try. That's arguably a little bit more disappointed with Leinster, given that the talent they have, and I still think there's talent there. Um, I accept his point that, again, like I was saying about Munster, the scrum had a huge ripple effect. In the way that Fritz Lee's early try had, it was like throwing a boulder into a pond, and just a ripple effect throughout the rest of the game. Those first few scrums that went against Munster and went, kept on going against Munster, against Leinster rather, were, were, had a huge ripple effect on the game. It denied them any platform, gave Hardikun's huge source of energy. I was at the match, it gave the crowd energy. I would argue about the legality of it. It looked like they were getting a shove on in, in, in the impact, which they sh- shouldn't be allowed to. Hardikwins, they were chasing the hit. Um, and they were, and definitely Marla was scrabbing across a few times from a left to right angle against Mike Ross. You could argue that a team with six of the Irish pack and four of the Irish tight five, including the Irish front row, should maybe be better at problem solving than that. I actually thought Leinster did try and play with a little bit more ambition. I thought in the first half, Gopper took the ball to the the game line very well when he reached Fitzgerald. I thought Fitzgerald looked very sharp. Ruddock carried well. There were one or two bonuses. But increasingly in the second half, Goppard, as he does, tends to go back into the pocket a bit more. Redden did not have a very happy game at scrum half, unusually for him. But they, they went wide quite a bit and showed a bit of ambition. But four times in the wide channel, they turned the ball over near the touchline. Once for a try. And that's just very, very un-Leinster-like. And that, that suggests there's something, something a little bit wrong with the back play. Shane, what do you think? Yeah, I, I disagree with you, Jerry. I actually didn't think... I know Gofford took the ball very flat in the first half, uh, but he's so readable. Now, it's, it, 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 from a defensive point of view, it's not difficult uh, because every time he does take the ball flat, he, he carries the ball into contact himself or he tries to to squeeze it out. Yes, you know, I think there was one occasion he got the ball away and there was a good break, but generally... When he carries the ball flat, you know there's no way he's going to be passing. When he does pass the ball, he stands and delivers. He goes back into the pocket, and he and he. Um, it's easy for the defensive system then just to drift out. Drift out. That meant when they were getting out into wide channels, there was huge pressure on the players out in those wide channels because there was a, a massive wave coming from Harlequins. Nobody was uh, nobody was uh, holding the inside. Um, first three defenders and it was just a big drift out into the touchline and the balls were getting turned over as a result of that there was sort of a panic from the outside backs and they were getting over flat they weren't um, you know giving the players time um, to pass the ball and, and we saw it you know, as a direct consequence of, of someone getting over flat they ended up being an intercept try but I, I thought you know, until the Leinster address the issue at 10, where they have a 10 that can attack flat but pass with a bit of depth and, you know, hold some on the inside, I think they're going to continue the problems. I don't think they showed the ambition in the second half as well. Like, the passing it back to, across the back line didn't happen. I was looking at how many times it went from from um, 9 to 10 
to another back who made another pass very rarely and when they did try to make that pass very very often went to ground uh, you know it was uh, you know it was a poor performance with Lance, by Lancer and the problem is everybody's waiting for this you know Lance revolt to come out let's see the performance let's see the spark let's see all these you know the quality that's definitely there like the amazingly uh, talented side some great players but as long as they can continue to play this conservative game which is you know, not dissimilar to what Munster are doing, but not as well as Munster do it, um, because they're not used to do it, and I don't think they have the players to do it as well as Munster. As, as long as they continue to do that, then uh, it becomes harder to, to revert to a more expansive decision-making passing style. You're a bit kinder towards Gobert than Shane, Jerry. Well, no, I, I do think that it's um, become a problem for Leinster, and it's a signature selection that Matt O'Connor has nailed his colours to the mast and he's backed himself to a little bit of a corner, I did say in this show last week that if you think back a year ago, um, Madigan was probably his best performance for Leinster, taking the ball nice and flat and putting plenty of pace on the ball. O'Driscoll really sharp and all the outside backs really sharp, coming from a camp, a month-long camp with Joe Schmidt. And they destroyed Northampton 40 points to, to nine or whatever it was in Franklin's Gardens. You never felt that was going to happen again or could it happen with, well, A, there's no O'Driscoll and B, the preference now has gone with Gopard, who just, I think, has been... Um, upset or he's been put off his game ever since the day it was announced that Johnny Sexton was coming home for four years because this is a player who now knows he's probably not no long term future and the word is that he's going back to Wasps he's going back to the Premiership and joining Wasps next season and he's just not playing with a whole lot of confidence and I would have loved to have seen Madigan get a run there 10 this season and it just hasn't happened I would say like you know maybe Madigan at 10 Noel Reed at 12 with his hands with his distribution would be an option that they could have looked at but they haven't looked at it and I think um, it is problematic for next weekend because I don't see that they can do a whole lot differently the only good thing is that I think Luke Fitzgerald looked really sharp. Looked really his footwork looked sharp. He looked remarkably fit for a guy who's got so little rugby under his belt. I'd like to see Kirshner involved. Um, I mean, there's still talent in that backline, and there's still a lot of big game players. And I think their pack will front up, and I think they'll generate an up, love, love more go forward ball, and their set piece will be better. I can't believe that will happen again. Those packs almost seem like strangers at times, though, Jerry. I mean, that that uh, Shane, I should say that um, intercept try. Those things can happen, but uh, Carney and Dara Fanning in particular were struggling to link up on a couple of occasions in the first half, and uh, Carney looked pretty frustrated at one stage. All right, uh, is there any is there any excuse or any explanation for that? Well, I think you look at a couple of things. You wonder. Um I look for personalities in the back line as well. So how vocal are, are the, the players? You know, it's a huge amount of um, the game comes down to uh, communication and letting people know where you are, telling them where you want the ball and what you want to do. You know, that would be a question for me. Are the, is the, the conversations, are this little micro conversations, are they happening? Is, is communication loud enough? I think you got, we, Lancer are going to have to address as well the skill deficit that's, that's um, come about in the last 18 months as well. There's a lot of balls hitting inside shoulder, which we're never used to. There's players actually not expecting to, um, you know, not running onto the ball, to, to, to the ball in the same way we um, have seen in Lancer in years gone by. You no, know, I actually heard as well that um, there's, a, you know, the, the the I think Matt, uh, sorry, um, Matt O'Connor likes the ball passed a little inside shoulder, and I just don't understand that. And I think it, a lot of players are getting stuck on those passes. It's stopping for momentum. I think when we see Leinster playing well, that ball is right out in front, and players are coming onto it a huge amount of pace. So I don't know if that's a if that's a definitive thing that that uh, Matt does. But I just couldn't believe the amount of inside shoulder passes from from a Leinster backline. L- listen, it wasn't just 
issues in the back line. Jerry mentioned it there. Like the scrum was was a real area of concern. You know, it's not an area of concern as an ongoing issue because both those props are very good players and it's a good scrummaging pack as well. So that would lead you to believe there was something that wasn't quite right. You know, Harlequins aren't a massive scrummaging side either. They're not bad, but they're, you know, they're not colossuses. So I think that is something that could be addressed. That may be a technical issue or some, uh, there may have been some illegality that can be addressed. The fact that it wasn't addressed on the pitch is a little bit concerning, but I think that's something that might get um, in place. A line-out time as well. There's a couple of crucial line-outs uh, that weren't uh, that weren't hit, and as a result, there was a, that sucked a huge amount of momentum out of uh, the Leinster team. Um, if they can get a couple of you know, first phase attacks going, where they're really going after the Harlequins' um, backline, I think they can. Um, get some reward there. I watched uh, Harlequins um, uh, a number of times this year and they are, they're, like, they're not like a top, top team in the Premiership at the moment. They're not. They're struggling a bit and they're very um, capable of being broken down off first phase moves. Something that traditionally Leinster are brilliant at but something that they're not, their focus doesn't seem to be there. It seems to be on this rolling, continuous tempo um, one-out carriers and I just don't think it's an effective way for Leinster to play or a smart way again. Do you think they'll get it done next weekend all the same? I think it'll be very difficult for them. I think it'll be a good atmosphere. I think if they get the line out and scrum right, I think they'll have good opportunity to beat this team because I don't think Harlequins, this Harlequins team at the moment, are a vintage side. Um, so, you know, they should they should have beaten them um, at the weekend. They should have beaten them yesterday. And they should beat them next uh, week. Whether they do or not, I'm not certain. Jerry? Um, if they were playing Leicester or Saracens or Bath, you'd be worried. But um, as Shane says, Harlequins are not having a vintage season. I was at this, was it the quarterfinal or semifinal two years ago when Munster went to Harlequins at the quarterfinal and won there two years ago before the Lions squad was selected. And that felt like a really epic game. You know, Nick, Nick Evans was on top of his game then. Rob Shaw was a couple of years younger. You know, they were all, they're the stronger team. They've, they've not spent money like a lot of the other English clubs. They've relied very much on their own academy, which is very laudable. But that's why they're sitting third from bottom in the Premiership and they've lost five from nine games. And the week before, their pack had been bullied by Bath. Also, Marla went off with what looked like a dodgy enough injury, holding his arm quite gingerly as he went off. Like, if he was missing, that seriously denudes their firepower up front. And I don't know, I mean, Leinster might have a few injuries themselves. You wouldn't know with them. You never know until the team is picked or even until they run out in the pitch. But I would still think that they will rectify a lot of those set-piece problems and that will have a, a, set, a, a significant effect on the game and allow them to get over the line without maybe scoring a bonus point or anything like that. But I do, I'd be surprised if they didn't win, to be honest. OK, Jerry, Shane, brilliant. Thank you. Thanks. Cheers. Mm. You remember my grandmother, no disrespect, when I used to get in trouble, she looked at me and said, hmm. And I know what was coming at the end. I'm an alien. Think about it. Roy Jones is born. Jane, 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 Tony is born. Iran Parker is born. But I'm telling you right now, I'm an alien. Tell me why I'm not. Explain why I'm here. I'm an alien. I should have been on this game 15, maybe 20 years ago, man. And then that's why I said I'm an alien. I'm an alien. Tell me why I'm not. Explain why I'm here. I'm an alien. But I'm telling you right now. I'm an alien. Just Google it and get your information. I'm an alien. You should be going. I'm an alien. Google it. I'm an alien. Mm. I'm an alien. I'm an alien.
I mentioned that interview with the uh, Claremont player, the English uh, back for Claremont there on BT Sport at the weekend. We've talked a little bit about the BT Sky stuff over the years so far. Uh, the access side of things is really what we've chatted about. The fact that BT and Sky now do these interviews during the game. And I think I'm a, and just all around during warm-ups and all this kind of thing. I think I'm a slightly bigger fan of those than you are, Murph, but we've been over that ground. I'm going to propose a motion to you, though. Okay. This is regard the, regarding the actual in-game commentary based, yeah. based on the Leinster game. Yeah. There needs to be, I don't know if this has to go into law or just broadcasting yeah. law or something, but there needs to be a maximum number of gags allowed between the two co-commentators, Matt Dawson and Dave Flatman. Yeah. yeah. Did you see I, this game? I, I did, I did on, and I just, I feel like, you know, there was just a bit too much levity. I was going to say the word banter there, <laughs> on because that's what it is. I mean, all of the negative connotations of the word banter, you can probably ascribe to the BT Sport. No, that was banter. I, we was can ban- use the word it when was. it is, when it actually is yeah, banter. And I don't care how much people hate the word banter. Yeah. I'm going to use the word banter if the I'm word gonna, banter fits. I'm going to say, right, that rugby does lend itself more so to a particular co- kind of banter, i.e. props can't run <laughs> yeah. and backs are no, prop, there was one. There was one gag about props not having brains during the match. Uh, oh, no, like, the big lad, not known for his... Yeah, I'm, his I'm, I'm sorry, I'm just I'm not, I'm not really feeling that. Yeah, you know, I, I think that there are certain body types required to play the sport of rugby, uh, but that doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, you can ascribe certain tired old stereotypes hmm. to those people. I mean, I, I just think that we so you steer away from my, that if at all possible. I, I don't mind, as you say, a bit of levity, a bit of banter is okay. Yeah. But uh, the new the new law I propose limits it to three jokes per half. Yeah, well, I would say, yeah, depending on the person making the joke. Well, it's Matt Dawson. But if it was Matt Dawson, I'd... <laughs> Maybe two and a half. I'd be inclined to just keep it, you know... <laughs> keep it tight. Stick to what you're good at, Matt. Delighted now to be joined by Podrick Harrington, winner of this year's Indonesian Open, his first tournament win in four years. Podrick, congratulations, firstly. You're already back in Dublin, I understand, so it must be a pretty sweet feeling to be flying back with the trophy. Yes, you know what? It's it's always really nice when you can get home pretty quickly, get home on a Monday morning. Sometimes uh, with the distances we have to travel, you know, it takes an extra day or two. So nice to have won a tournament, get home early. Uh, yeah, feels good. Got seven weeks off, so probably couldn't have won the tournament uh, more apt time yeah lots of time to wallow in the victory for the next few weeks yeah I, I, you know what I will enjoy it uh, you know if there's one thing I've learned as a pro and I'm, I'm not saying just over the recent few years but you don't win as often as you think you're going to win or as, as anybody thinks you're going to win so when it happens you've got to enjoy it and celebrate it and, and you know make the most of it that you know they are good days they're the best days of your life as, as as we're always told, so you you got to make sure you enjoy them. Particularly in your sport, Patrick. I mean, winning a golf tournament it's it's different from um, a lot of other sports. Really, it's not football. It's not that like you either win or you lose. It's as you say, it's rare enough. Even somebody with your story career, you're going to lose a lot more tournaments than you're going to win. Yeah, you know, I, I think uh, I, I was trying to figure it out. I think I've got 29 wins and 30 second places, so I still have to catch up, and <laughs> that's not including third places and, and others. So, yeah, look. I play 30 times a year and in your best possible year well for me would be three wins so you know not even 10% of the time so that's 27 losses in a in a really good year The the way you're speaking am I right in thinking maybe that a few years back you didn't enjoy the wins quite as much or is that not right that maybe you're I I wouldn't say no I tell you what I enjoyed my major wins I'd learned that lesson by the time the majors would come around I will say uh, you know Maybe ten years ago, you know, there's times I would have won a tournament and you know be sitting in my hotel room that night, 
you know, thinking about what I'm going to do the next day in terms of of my golf game or something like that. I, I grew up, my hero was, was Bernard Langer and, uh, you know, the famous story told about Bernard Langer when he, won his, when he won the Masters. I think the first time, the next day, he was at Hilton Head trying to walk through a marsh to get a yardage on the 18th hole. <laughs> so at this stage, yeah, I, I'm, not, I'm not that guy anymore, that guy for sure. I, I, I realise that if you win something, uh, your brain needs to, to, to be told, yeah, this is what, it's all about go out there and enjoy it, celebrate it. You don't have to go, go mad. You know, you, you're still a, you know, a professional about things, but you, you certainly got to tell yourself that it's worthwhile, and that means enjoying it. We spoke to you on TV in April around the time of the Masters, and you made the point then that you felt that if you could get back in contention, you could win, that you just hadn't been getting yourself in the right position. Were you, did you still hold that conviction after you'd lost the lead during the final round? I, yeah, you know, I, 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 I love being in contention. Uh, I just haven't got there. And I have learned over the years how to deal with being in contention. I, I, uh, all those losses I talked about, second places, you know, there was many different emotions and experiences uh, learned through those things. And, 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 you know, I'm good now in that sort of situation. I, I, I know what to expect. And, and I'm, I'm definitely better coming down the stretch because of it. Uh, I hit my best shot of the week. Uh, last week on the 18th hole, you know, I'm I'm good in that situation. So it's all, it is all about getting myself in contention. And you know, I I've done a miserable job at that over the last couple of years. Uh, I've become quite intolerant to my uh, my mental game, not very accepting of my my focus because I felt it was so good when I won the the majors that you know I was always trying to live up to the perceived ideal of how good my focus was those weeks but the reality probably wasn't as good as I thought and certainly last week I was a little bit more accepting uh, stuck to my guns and uh, where, where it wasn't perfect it certainly worked out Did you happen to notice your opponent I see afterwards he's 24 years of age and he did say the pressure got to him I think he said the pressure scared him a little bit at the end did you notice that at all and if so did you prey on it as the more experienced player? I, you know I, 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 I'd read that situation he came out on the Saturday leading the tournament with me we were joint leaders and he struggled early on uh, he, he, it was actually a miracle that he was like two over through 13 holes but then when he came out after the rain delay the next morning he relaxed and uh, he made birdie after birdie. And, and when he came out in the final round, he, he was three under after nine holes. And it was the worst he possibly could have been. He was, you know, he should have been five, six under par. He played awesome. He was very aggressive, taking everything on. But momentum was with him. And I knew there was a rain delay after nine holes. And I was praying for that rain delay because I knew if it stopped, then he'd have to think about it. And he did lose his momentum. Uh, he played nicely on the back nine for the first five holes. And then... You know, he'd hit a couple of bad shots, say the, uh, as I said, on the Saturday, and I knew they would reappear. He, and, you know, with the pressure coming down the stretch, you know, he did well. He made a, he made a great up and down at 16. I missed my birdie putt, which was a blow to me. That, I thought that was my chance. Uh, he held a good putt in 17. I had to hold one afterwards. And clearly, I, I was a little bit unlucky in the last. I hit it in the water. And, and uh, you know, I, I, I hadn't given up, uh, but certainly things were against me. And uh, I was surprised that he missed his second shot in the water. It was the one place he couldn't hit it, obviously. Uh, if he hit it up the left-hand side, he was always going to have, the likelihood is he was going to have a six or seven-footer to win the tournament. You sound like you, you didn't feel any extra pressure given that it had been so long, because it was something I was interested in. Was there, did, did it feel like there was in any way as much pressure on this one as there were for the majors given that it had been so long? 
you know, one thing in our sport, which is, I don't know if it's strange, but we get interviewed all the way through the tournament and you get asked, I, well, how will I put this, leading questions, probing questions. So, you know, sometimes they, you know, they could turn around to you and say, do you realize you haven't had a three put this week? And of course, they're putting three put in your head. <laughs> and uh, of course, before I went out in the last round, I was asked several times, well, you haven't won for four years. What does this win mean to you? And, and that's the last thing you want to be thinking about is the, is the consequences of winning or not winning. And, and to be honest, I tried to get away from it, but I always felt the consequence of not winning was going to be a bigger deal than if I won. Winning is very nice, and, and for sure I'm delighted to have won and I'm, I'm thrilled about it. But I think if I didn't win from the position I was in, I think a lot more would have been read into it. So it's a matter of you having that knowledge but trying not to think too much about yeah, it? You have to block it out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You have, you know, you, As I said, in a perfect world, you would never talk to anybody about your golf uh, once the tournament has started. But, you know, as I said, the media is always there asking questions. And I, it never ceases to amaze me. You know, you'll get a guy say to you on a Saturday evening, how do you think you can win tomorrow? You've only hit four fairways today. You mightn't be aware of that. You might think, oh, I thought I played okay. Or, you know, how do you think you can win? You've, you're, you know, you haven't had a three put. Surely, you know, they, they, yeah. they put, put things in your head, which is what we have to deal with. In the end of the day, you, you know, these things are going to happen. Whether they're from that source or some other source or your own head, you have to deal with it. And, and the, the key is you have a plan. You have, I had uh, four different points to concentrate on for myself last week uh, and you know constantly had to remind myself of those things now I mean constantly I'm looking two or three times a whole all the time to keep reminding myself of the good stuff uh, if you're going to remind yourself of the good stuff over the next couple of months then Patrick if there's w- is there one element of your build up this week or what you did this week that if you could bottle it you'd use it ne- again next year uh, oh absolutely yeah you know I, 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 I've uh, I've been I've been working with uh, Steve Peters do you, do you know Steve Peters? Yeah, yeah. The, yeah, uh, yeah. So I've been working with Steve Peters now a few months and, and certainly, uh, you know, delving into a few things and, and, and certainly gone back to one of one of the big problems I've had is since I've won my majors, I, I had such a high expectations of my focus. There were obviously so much was made about how, how I focused through those events and, and I became quite intolerant of, of, of doing a bad job. And last week... I kind of went, how will I put this? I was more accepting of not focusing well, which meant I stuck to my guns and just kept doing it. Yeah. And I know that sounds a bit awkward, but the reality is, you know, if you, if you try and focus and you fail, you can become despondent. Last week I just tried to focus and wasn't too worried if I got it right or not. Is that one of those things? I often wonder when you're talking to a sports psychologist like that, did that make sense to you straight away when he told you this is what you had to do? Uh, I I could write the book on it at this stage. I I there's not a, I won't say there's not a thing I don't know, but I, I pretty much could, I could definitely write a book on on psychology. I know the answers, but that doesn't mean you necessarily do it. So a lot of times when you're working with a, a good sports psychologist, you ask and answer your own questions, and he's just there as a as a, as a sounding board to dig into it and 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 to unearth it what what's in there, and and for sure uh, I could. I could tell you all the answers, but it doesn't mean I can do it myself. <laughs> How regular are those contacts with Steve Peters? Is that quite? A, is that a weekly thing? Uh, no, I would say every break I have. So you know, I tend to play three tournaments and then would would want to have contact and talk about it. And it's it's it, it's been ongoing now. I've got to say, but I think uh, 
as I said, the last tournament was probably my best. I've I've had some. I've definitely had some uh, eureka moments. Uh, my putting changed around. Uh, that was the biggest thing about three months ago. Having that confidence that I figured out how to change my putting around has helped with my long game. And I think last week was a was a really really big week for me. That you know I got back to really just been accepting more of, of the mistakes I was making rather than, uh, you know, I I felt like, look, I should be able to keep my focus good, but the reality is I just was, was putting too much expectation and too much pressure on it. We also saw you in a new role at the Ryder Cup, and I know you, you've talked about staying in the background there and not wanting to be too sort of obvious a, pre- a presence, but it's something that you seem to enjoy. I'm wondering, did you take anything from that for your own game? No. Nothing Absolutely. at all. <laughs> you know what? If I took something from the Ryder Cup, it would make me. I enjoyed it so much, having so little to do, having no pressure on me, no stress. If anything, the Ryder Cup would would encourage me to retire from this game. It was such a, <laughs> a, a, a fun week, an enjoyable week. McGinley did all the work. He he was terrific. I I cannot tell you. And I know with the media, everybody's saying how good a job. I cannot tell you how good a job he did. And to be honest. He's made it hard for everybody else coming after mm-hmm. him because it'd be hard to live up to, to what he did. Well, listen, Podrick, well done for you, uh, to you, I should say, for your win at the weekend. Great to see you back winning. And uh, oh, we, sh- we should note that we read in the, in the report today that you told a TV reporter you were going to take 100,000 swings over, your, over the course of your break. Uh, would that be about right? Yeah, you know, that's, that's, that's the goal. I've got like seven weeks, but a few extra days. I've, I reckon I've got about 52 days. So I'll have a couple of... Uh, I'll, I'll easily make that up, yeah. 100,000 swings is only 2,000 swings a day. No problem. I'll, I'll get it done. <laughs> no problem at all. Listen, enjoy that and enjoy the enjoy whatever there is of a break as well. Potter, great, uh, great to talk to you. Thanks, okay, you. thanks. Bye. Modern day coaching. What is it all about? Paralysis by analysis. Infiltrated by a load of spoofers and bluffers. Fellas with earpieces stuck in their ears. Psychologists, Clyde Woodward, statisticians, dietitians, And as Mick O'Connell alluded to, God save us. Yeah, so, uh, well, Podrick, he did say he will enjoy the win over the next few weeks, but that doesn't mean he's not going to practice like Mm. an absolute... Uh, if you break it down to just 2,000 things a day, it's perfectly reasonable. Sounds, so it's not like uh, it's a major deal. Uh, Michael Foley, the Sunday Times, is with us. Michael, how are you? Not too bad, On How are you? Yeah, not bad. You've been listening to Podrick there. He, he sounds really happy and relaxed. It's great, isn't it? Yeah. And I mean, I think, like, okay, it's a small tournament in Asia, but I think the sort of the affection. And you know what? Even the interest that seems to be constantly there in Harrington around the country, even when he's going so badly as he was, people sort of just want him to do well because I suppose we've kind of, we've lived his story with him through the years and he's so open and he's so well able to articulate everything that's going on at, at a given stage of his career that we've all been able to sort of at least go on a little bit of the journey with him anyway. So to sort of see him, see him winning a tournament again is that's great at 43 years of age. I was great. quite struck by what he said there about if there was one thing that he could put it down to, it's this, and he mentioned it a couple of times there, this focus that he has and that he clearly prides himself on and that we've all seen. With him, it's, it's actually a really clear thing. We all remember the the crazy eyes of the majors and all that kind of stuff. But uh, And as best as I understood it, how he articulated it there, what has happened to him over the last few years is he always feels he should have that focus. So if it drops, if his concentration or focus drops for a second, he then starts beating himself up. Mm-hmm. It's, I guess it's quite a, it's quite a Potter Harrington way of explaining that he gets down on himself yeah. and he's managing to find a way not to do that. Yeah, what I got the sense is kind of trying to strip it back. As you said, there's a lot of 
you can tell he's, you know, it's real sports psychology speak, you know, like not accepting my focus. But I think what I sensed from it was that he's becoming more accepting of making mistakes. Like, that yeah. if, if he makes a mistake, it's not knocking him sideways. He's going, okay, that's going to happen. We can drive on through this, like, you know. And it kind of got me thinking, I wonder, right, if, if he had had a sl- this kind of mindset or that, that thought process going on around 2008, would he have started tinkering around with his swing and things because he won a swing he won those majors with what he would consider to be a flawed swing mm. and then he stopped and he he went and tried he, the work began and his form started to dip a bit i just wonder like if he was more accepting of the flaws in his game then rather than this constant quest which is really admirable in its own way this constant quest to master this craft you know he's and to be the best he can be at his job and what have you i just wonder though like would he would we be sort of celebrating a, a tournament win for Parra Carrington in a small corner of Southeast Asia? You know? Yeah, I, I, it's, it's strange to me because sometimes, you know, you see a, a sportsman not playing his sport to the to the best of his ability and you can just say, right, you know, God, I'm just not playing golf all that well, you know. Whereas with Harrington, it's like he gets, him, gets down on himself sometimes for the, his play and then he gets down on himself beyond that for his mental game not I mean it's kind of twice as bad he's down on himself it. for being down on himself yeah exactly yeah yeah <laughs> instead of just yeah. kind of saying god I just didn't play golf well today yeah. it's, it's, I didn't play, well, play golf well today and my f- mental focus wasn't there either he's kind of doubling down on the sort of grief he gives himself but, yeah, yeah it's, 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 it's a weird thing that he has you know but he's of that ilk of golfer he's like, like Arnold Palmer right said a, a very a fascinating thing one time He's at 70 years of age, he said, I think I'm finally getting it. I think I'm finally getting it. At 70 years of age. And I remember Harrington picking up on that years ago, kind of saying, well, you know, God, you know, I kind of hope I'm like that, you know? Yeah, yeah. That yeah. I'm getting it. I mean, guys like Ben Hogan. Ben Hogan got the yips at some stage in his career and he just, it just finished him. Yeah. He, he had to walk away. He couldn't do it anymore because he couldn't be the master of his craft that he wanted to be. And I think that's kind of what's fascinating about Harrington. And that's why we sort of admire him. Even when he's going badly, we admire his relentless drive to be the best he can yeah, be. Even tilting at windmills. Oh, kind of, yeah. It never ends, you know? It's also, yeah. though, his... I think he got a, a certain sense of his ruthlessness on the golf course there as well. And that's how you have to be if you're going to win these tournaments against so many other guys in the field. It doesn't always boil down to you against the same player on the last hole as it, as it did in this case. But yeah, he completely noticed that his opponent um, was a little bit afraid of the pressure that was on that. And all you can do at that stage if you're the experienced guy is try not to make mistakes. He, he, albeit Harrington did make one himself in the final hole but recovered from it. Yeah, I mean, as much as I suppose he's hard on himself, you know, Nice guy, and all it is, but like in you know, we we look at you talk to elite sports people all the time. You know, you like there's an edge to them all. Like there's a sort of a there's part of them that comes out when the fat is in the fire. Like and you have to and you kind of have to do whatever it takes. Like sometimes you have to do whatever it takes, and you could even sense it there. He, you could it, it almost sounded cold dead eyes when he was talking about the other guys round, and he was like, yeah, he played well for the first few holes of the second half of his round and then you know he put in the one and he said he was, uh, Potter said he was actually waiting uh, Harrington was hoping there'd be a rain delay because he knew that would, that would mean uh, this guy's actually started quite well today but he's, yeah. he's going to have to think about how close he is to victory now mm. yeah absolutely and it was fascinating like the and you, I think you said at the park there as well like I mean, about the fact that the guy got he said it himself that the, 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 the guy said he, he got afraid at the end and like the contrast is, is amazing like with Harrington and your man because I mean Harrington again over the years has always made the point that he he embraces that, like, and when he was a much younger player, even when he was, you know, racking up all those second places and that, that fear, that pressure was what fueled him, you know, mm-hmm. and it's what 
kind of eventually made him a major winner, I suppose, but he had to go through the, all the, the torture of everything that came before. But that sort of turning that into fuel was always a key thing with him as well, you know. I'm interested in next year for him now. I mean, this is... It's funny, these, these tournaments towards the end of the year, if there's no Irish interest in them or no Irish involvement in them or no Irish winners, you don't think twice about them. And uh, it, it, you're almost wondering why some people are playing them. But when it, at a certain stage of a certain person's career, it can be a godsend, as this is for Harrington. He's won this now. He's got confidence back. And could you? Are, are we back to thinking that he could be contending for majors again? Am I stretching it a bit? I remember he's, another thing he said one time was, there's a percentage of golfers in the world, he said, they peak between 29 and 30. And then there's another percentage that peaked between 39 and 40. And that, he said that at a time when, again, it was, this was post-majors and he was going through a dip and we didn't realise how low the dip was going to go. But So he's 43 now. So by his own calculations, he's, the chances of him getting back to where he was are very low. But then again, as you say, when you look at some of the major winners over, over, over the last five, ten years, you know, a lot of them, a lot of them are quite, are not old, but I mean, you know, they're yeah. in their 40s. They're you know? closer to 43 than, than you might think. Than you 28 know? or 29, 30, yeah. yeah. You know? uh, well, so, I mean, I think we might be, I think, you know, that would be a massive ask. But at the same I, time, I, and I didn't say win, I said contend. But then again, as as we discussed, if he contends, yeah. he's got as good a chance of anyone exactly. as winning. Exactly. I think as well, you know, it's it's not even so much about maybe contending in ma- in majors. But if he could pick, if he could play well in sort of the the mid Asia, you know, sort of the 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 Dubai, the, the first few tournaments of the year in January and February, you know, you do, it's Port of Carrington. You don't know where where he could go from there, you know. And if if there's someone out there who's going to book the trend of a guy being past his prime then I think it's the guy who's still completely raging against the dying of the light, not the guy who's kind of, you know, half retired to the 19th hole to talk about his three major wins. I mean, Porter Carrington is never going to be a guy who's going to be happy to sort of sit in the Sky Sports uh, commentary boots and start talking about the majors that he won. No, and he's clearly yeah. still working as hard on the mental side of things as ever. As he said, he could have written a book on it. He's, it's Steve Peters is the guy now, but you kind of get the sense, it, in a way, it could be anyone in that he, he uses them as a sounding board. He knows a lot of what the, the sports psychologists say is going to be common sense and he'll have a, a pretty good idea of of what he's supposed to do anyway. It's just a matter of actually executing that and, in the arena. And that's very much the case, though. With a lot of people who use sports psychologists, they already... That's half the idea. I think of the whole thing is that you know you already know the idea. You already know the answer to the question that you're being asked. Yeah. It's just for you to verbalise it. I remember talking to Mickey Hart years ago actually about this, and he was saying that uh, in the, before the 2003 All Ireland final, he had a couple of sessions with. He wasn't a sports psychologist, no, but he was sort of a, just a guy he bounced stuff off of, right? And your man asked him, "What are you going to do about Stephen McDonald? Do you have a plan for Stephen McDonald?" And Mickey said, "Yes." Okay, tell me the plan. And Mickey said he hadn't actually verbalised the plan at all. To he just knew when he said, "I oh, will yeah. do this," we'll do but he said when he said it, it kind of he noticed some flaws in in whatever the plan was, you know. Yeah. So some, it's the same like with individual sports people. Sometimes they know in their heads what they need to do, but sometimes they need to get it out. But here's one: just going back to the major question. There, I was talking to somebody about this yesterday afternoon, before like whenever before Hangton had, I think well the news had just come through, I think or whatever. But anyway. Um, the Olympics, he said. It's the Olympics. Of course, yeah. The top 15 male golfers in the world get automatically qualified. Top 15 women do it. 60, I think it's 60 competitors. And then the next 30 from countries who aren't already represented, right? So chances are, like, Ireland are going to have two two in the top 15, more than likely. But it's, I'd, I would be, we, we both sort of agree that, yeah, that's something now that Harrington would get the bit between his teeth. It's got two years, like... Yeah, or the guts of two years, right? Yeah, although I think yeah. Harrington, no. I think Harrington was um, publicly 
uh, quite hopeful that McElroy might go the other way and yeah. uh, free up an Irish spot there. And or, you know, happened. play under the Olympic flag. You know what I mean? <laughs> Everyone's a winner, particularly poor Carrington. That's all right. All right, well, listen, Michael Foley, great to have you in the studio. Thanks a million. No problem. Thanks very much. That's one of those things. Stop it! How many players can do this? Duffman can never die. He's 34 years old. Robbie Keane continues to captivate. That's one of those things. Duffman can never die. Only the actors who play him. No, he did. No, he did. Questions about me being the MVP of this league? I think he just said right there. Oh, yeah. He's got more of a Just before we wrap up this show, my friend, just to remind everybody that Ken Early is going to be broadcasting from LA where he has been watching Robbie Keane. He interviewed Robbie before the game and uh, has observed the, the mania surrounding the uh, Los Angeles Galaxy's mm-hmm. victory there in the MLS Cup. So we're going to talk to, talk to Ken and have loads of great stuff in that show. But before we wrap this one up, um, I wanted to mention the Ballyhale Shamrocks win to you. Not yeah. that, on the face of it, a Kilkenny team winning a Lancer title isn't that interesting. But what I, what I find interesting about it is it's got to push this Henry Sheffin decision out in mm. terms of when he retires. Yeah, I would think so. Um, there's already been uh, five retirements this autumn, all uh, pretty high-profile players, pretty decorated players. And I, I don't think Sheffin's going to make a decision until... And, you know, all of the guys that retired, they've been asked... You know, well, what do you think? Is Henry going to go? All of the Kilkenny players that aren't retiring have been asked a million times, do you think Henry's going to go? I can't see Henry making a decision until after Ballyhale are out. So this is February at the earliest, uh, March, you know, more than likely even. Um, so, yeah, I, I think it's interesting. The one thing maybe that we have learned from all of the retirements over the last couple of weeks is that, you know, they were very decorated players, but... Only one starter, and that was JJ. Only one starter from the Ireland final has actually retired. That's JJ Delaney. I think that even for Shefflin, to hear hear to hear the guys speak uh, after they've announced that they're going to step away, Cody wasn't exactly begging them to hang around. Now maybe Cody had a word with JJ Delaney because he's a starter in the Ireland final, which would suggest that he's a starter for next. You know, in Cody's head, you know he's he's a guy that's still very much in his thoughts. Maybe he had a word with JJ to try and convince him. But, I mean, you know, it, it has it got to a stage where Sheffield picks up the phone and says, Brian, I'm not coming back. That's that's quite all right. Well, it could be. We thank, it could you, well be. We thank you for your service. But it's funny. It's not as though, I mean, a guy like Brian Hogan, it's not like he was a million miles away from, from the setup. It's a couple of the, the guys you mentioned who weren't involved come the Ireland final or come the replay. Mm. They, weren't, they hadn't been completely out in a limb during the entire season. So it's a funny one in that Cody can do this. And... Uh, I was about to start doubting Kilkenny for next year, Murph. Wondering, can they deal with this deficit of leadership? Which yeah, Keith Duggan was, you know, saying that, you know, look at Kerry. You know, <laughs> Kerry actually got rid of guys who were still starting in the All Ireland semi final of 2012, yeah, uh, and or 2013, and uh, they seem to do pretty all right this year. So to doubt them would be folly of the highest order. All right, Murph, thank you, thank you, Owen. Thank thanks you very much. much for listening. You can check out our website secondcaptains.com, and you can follow us on Twitter at Second Captains. Uh, while I'm on the the plugging uh, theme here irishtimes.com forward slash podcast loads of great podcasts on that page there if you have time to have a listen in the meantime take care and we'll talk to you later on uh, in the company of Ken Early from LA Cheers. what is that? that's the second time it's gone off
never go home, they never go home, they never go home, those, those, those boys. <laughs>